Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you've been around Oasis uh, for a, a few years, you'll know that in 2019 through to 2020, we started a series in the book of John. Now at this point, we're not now pressing play uh, to continue where we kind of stopped in March 2020, but rather we're gonna look at it through a lens of Jesus's invitation in John 10:10, where he says that he's come to bring life to you and to me, uh, whether we're in the room, whether we're online, whether we're watching at a different point, whether we know something of Jesus, when we think we know nothing of Jesus, that he's come in order that we could know life and life in full. And it's that that we want to look at because as we continue in the book of John, what we're going to discover is John begins to paint a picture of what that life in full looks like. Today's reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 23 to 26. Jesus prays for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Wonderful. Good morning. Uh, It is so great to be with you today. Uh, Yeah, my name is Liam and this is actually my first time in Birmingham. Um, Oh, yeah. Well, not strictly true. We spent an hour on the platform waiting for a connection to somewhere else, but this is already way more enjoyable than that, I have to say. Um, and consequently, it's my first time here with you as a church. Uh, although I have been a fan of you guys from afar, um, I've definitely benefited from relationships with numbers of your leaders at various events over the years. Um, in fact, my wife uh, was a youth growing up with Mike, and this week we went through a whole load of photo albums and dug out the most embarrassing ones we could find. <laughs> and I'm going to resist. <laughs> like, everything within me wants to show one. But... Uh, no, I, I'm going to resist because I'd like to remain friends, but just, just email me, email me, it's fine. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's fantastic to be here. Oh, and another first, my first time ever preaching sitting down. So um, I, I move around a lot. The cameramen at my church would like me to sit down, um, so I'll try not to get too excited. To, no, I can be excited while sitting down. I think I can manage that. Um, it's a real privilege to be here, and you guys have been working through John's Gospel, which is my favourite of the Gospels, but I also do think in many ways is the most complex of the Gospels, and I think John chapter 17 is probably the most complex chapter of the most complex 
gospel, so thanks for that. (laughs) Uh, But it's also the most beautiful passage because in this passage, uh, we get to see what was on Jesus' mind and on his heart in the moments before he died or in the days before he died. This is the last recorded prayer that we have from Jesus as he knew what was about to happen with his arrest and his uh, torture and his execution. And in this uh, passage, we haven't read the whole thing, but basically read the whole prayer. It's amazing. Um, And it starts out with Jesus praying for himself, uh, verses 1 to 5, knowing what he was about to face. Then he widens it out and he prays for his disciples, his immediate disciples, praying for their protection through all that's about to come. And then he widens it out in the verses that we're going to look at today. And he prays for every believer that will come from that point onwards. And in fact, everyone in the world from that point onwards. So the thing that was on Jesus' mind as he was approaching his death, the thing that he brought to his father in prayer was you. Yeah, and me. In fact, everyone who lives but particularly those of us who are followers of Jesus from that point to now and beyond. And so I want to ask you this question as we start. If you could ask God, if you could pray for one thing that would convince the world that Jesus was who he claimed to be, what would you ask for? If you were a follower of Jesus here and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord who through his death and resurrection has come to renew all things and allow us to have reconciliation to the Father, if you believe that and you could ask for one thing that would convince your friends and family to believe the thing that you believe about Jesus, what would you ask for? Or if you are here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, can you see I'm edging forward on my seat? I just want to get up. <laughs> if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, firstly, like, well done for being here. Because <laughs> I know it is a big thing to be in a room with a bunch of people who believe some stuff that you might not believe and frankly is often quite odd. And so well done for being here. And actually, I do hope that you find this to be a really helpful place to explore some of your questions of faith. But if you could ask God who you may or may not believe in, for one thing that would convince you to believe the things that your friends and family believe, what would you ask for? I think for many of us, we would probably ask for something maybe intellectual, uh, some, some evidence, some kind of incontrovertible proof that means I can't deny it. I have to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Or maybe we'd ask for something supernatural, Like if I could just see the things that Jesus did all the time, if I could see the dead raised and the sick healed left, right and center, or or Jesus appear himself or an angel or something like that, that would convince me. Something intellectual, something supernatural. Now those are both very important, but neither of those are the things that Jesus prays for. He doesn't pray for anything intellectual or supernatural, but relational. Look at what he says in this passage. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me, that is every Christian down the ages, that they may be one, that they may be one as we, referring to the Trinity, are one, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus seems to think that the thing that will convince the world of the truthfulness of the claims about him, the claims he made, is the unity of the church. Maybe not what I would think to ask for, but that is what Jesus prays for. He prays for the unity of the church as a powerful witness. And this is not just a superficial unity. He says that he wants his people to display the very unity that is at the heart of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit don't merely tolerate one another. (laughs) They don't have a superficial unity where they just kind of just get on with each other through gritted teeth. They are the perfect embodiment of pure love. And Jesus says that he wants us as Christians to display that same love to one another, and then the world will know, okay, 
It's worth taking note. There's something going on here that goes beyond what is just naturally capable, uh, what people are naturally capable of. And I think the reason that Jesus believes that unity is such a powerful witness is because it taps into something that is hardwired in us. We long for unity within diversity. It's the way we were created. Look around this world right now. I'm sure you will agree we live in a divided and broken world. You don't need me to convince you of that. We know that. We live in a world that is so full of division and hurt and pain and disunity discrimination on the basis of race, gender, sexuality, religion. For a world that preaches tolerance, we don't know how to do it very well. We do not know how to live finding unity within our diversity, honoring our difference and yet coming together as one. And deep down, I would put it to you that all human beings long for unity in diversity. We long for a place where all of us can love and be loved and be accepted. We long for this, I believe, because we were created to long for that. And so the reason why Jesus says that this is his prayer, he wants the unity of the church, is because his desire is that people should be able to see in us something modeled that they deeply long for but can't find anywhere else and go, I want to know the God who makes that possible. And so what I want to do this morning is just dive into this really small issue of church unity and the Trinity. (laughs) And... and, um, raise some issues for your leaders to (laughs) sort out later. Um, But (laughs) I want to look at two aspects of unity that I think come through in this prayer. And they are the gift of unity and the call of unity. And we'll start with the gift of unity. Let me take you right back to the beginning of the Bible. The Bible doesn't begin with us. It doesn't begin with humanity. It actually begins before we were on the scene at all. It begins with God, a God who was never created but has existed eternally. And the Bible says that this God is love. Now, because he is an eternal being who is eternally unchanging, when it says that God is love, that doesn't mean he's loved just now, but he used to be something else. It means that eternally this God has been love. But the thing about love is this. We don't simply love in some kind of abstract sense. Love always has an object. You love something or you love someone. So if this God has existed as love before there was anything in existence apart from him, what did he love? Like, what was it that this God eternally loved if there was nothing else on the scene? Well, Jesus actually answers that riddle in this passage. He says this, you, Father, loved me before the creation of the world, which tells us a few things. Firstly, Jesus existed before anything else was created. Actually, Adrian has already just read that beautiful rendition of Colossians 1. We'll come back to that later. It talks about everything being created through him and for him and by him. He existed before all of that because Jesus is God. He's not part of the created order. And before anything else existed, there was perfect love between the Father and the Son. For all eternity, God has existed as a perfect, loving community what Christians call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in loving relationship. Unity in diversity. Three, yet one. And the Bible opens with this triune God creating everything. We read this in Genesis. God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. See what's going on there. God says, let us make humanity in our image. 
The God who exists in loving community creates humanity as two that are yet one, male and female, both together representing oneness, unity in diversity. I think the reason that we long for unity is we were hardwired that way, created by our creator to exist as diverse beings coming together as one. We were designed to find fulfillment by being united with one another and with our creator. As the fifth century theologian Augustine put it in a famous prayer, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We were meant to thrive and flourish in perfect unity. But if you know the story of Genesis, you know that unity didn't last long. You get to page two of your Bible and we mess the whole thing up. <laughs> Why? Because humans desired to go their own way. And so what we did was we, we, we abandoned God. We disobeyed the creator. We went our own way. And as a result, the perfect relationship of unity was shattered in every dimension. The relationship between us and our creator, broken. The relationship between us and creation, broken. The relationship between man and woman and mankind as a whole, broken. And so from Genesis 3 right on, this world, which was created for unity, has been characterized by disunity, by hurt, by pain, by brokenness, by enmity, by division, by war, and by violence, and the restlessness that comes from being separated from our God. But God did not give up on us. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus, to come and repair this broken world. Jesus came into our world and into our experience. He entered our plight and he experienced rejection and isolation. Jesus knew what it was like to be treated with scorn. He knew what it was like to be abused by those in power. Jesus knew what it was like to be looked down on because of his status, to be judged because of the place and the circumstances of his birth, to be mocked, to be abused, to have his motives questioned, to be falsely accused time and time again. And the culmination of this story, which happens just after John 17, is that Jesus went to the cross. And at the cross, he became the focal point for all the hatred and division in this world. He took upon himself all the brokenness and division of this world and everything everyone has ever done to contribute to that. He became the focal point of it all. And at the cross, he was separated from his father who loved him since before the foundations of the earth. But three days later, he rose again from the dead, demonstrating that the triune God ultimately has the victory over the powers of division and darkness. And as we've already heard from Colossians 1, so beautifully read to us today from the message, this is slightly less poetic, but still powerful. Um, it says this, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The good news of Jesus is this. He was separated from the Father so we could be reunited with the Father. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we were given the gift of unity. And the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, it depicts the day when Jesus will return and make all things new. And on that day, it's depicted as what? A marriage between male and female, Christ and his bride, two coming together as one. 
And on that day, all the traces, every trace of disunity will be removed. It says in Revelation 21.4, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This is the story of the Bible. It's the story of a God who perfectly embodies unity and diversity, a community of love, creating us for unity, and then coming to make unity where we had caused disunity, uniting all things to himself in Christ. And Jesus' prayer for the church is that we would be one, brought together as complete unity so that we exist now as a picture of what God intends to do for all creation. And if you read through the New Testament letters again and again, unity is a key theme. It comes through in pretty much every letter. The church is described as being a body in which every part needs the others. We're like a building in which we're like stones built together to create this glorious structure. We're to be of one mind, Paul says in Philippians. In Christ, the divisions of Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and master, are torn down and we are made one. This is the gift of unity. Look around this room for a moment. Actually do it. That's not like some kind of rhetorical thing. Actually look around this room. And if you're watching uh, at home, just imagine the people in the room or look around your room and I hope there may be at least one other person there. Um, Look around this room. We are one. We are one. We're a family despite our difference. Like you, sir, you are my brother. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Like you, madam, you're my... My sister, Adrian, you're the weird uncle, but like every family has, we're still family, right? <laughs> have you, have you, I don't know if you've ever played that icebreaker game. Um, I've done it in a few places where like you have maybe six people together and you have to find something that you've all got in common. And so you ask questions. It's like, uh, have you ever broken your, uh, a limb or something? Yes, yes, no, oh, okay, something. Have you ever been arrested? <laughs> yes, yes, surprising number of people being arrested. I don't know, <laughs> that's always quite concerning, isn't it? Uh, and you, you try and work it out until eventually you land on something that draws you together and the weirdest and wackiest thing, the better. Now imagine scaling that up to this room. Imagine scaling that up to the churches in this city. Imagine scaling that up to the global church. You have broken an arm. (laughs) That's not going to cut it. Only one thing, one thing will bind us together, and it's Jesus. And that is a powerful and beautiful idea because there is so, I mean, there is no way that this group of people will have anything else to draw you together apart from Jesus. And maybe some of you, maybe groups within this group, but not all of us, we are only one because of him. That is the gift of unity. And when the church is working right, when we are embodying unity in its best, most pure way, other people should look at us and go, how? How is that possible? We gather around little hobbies or ideas or things that draw, but we don't experience the unity that they experience. How is that possible? I want to know the God who makes that possible. That's why Jesus prays that we would be one. But the reality is that Even though through the gospel we are one, that is a fact. We are family. It doesn't always feel that way. At least it doesn't to me. Maybe you're the perfect church, in which case it's great to be here and to meet you finally. But I don't think that's the case. It often doesn't feel like we are as one as we ought to be. And so that's why there's a second half to what I want to look at today, because we receive the gift of unity. We are made one, but with that gift comes a calling, a calling to live up to the unity that God has won for us. And I'm not so sure that we are good at that. 
Actually, rather than being the model of unity that Jesus prayed we would be, very often we are just as divided, maybe even more divided than many other parts of the world. Do you know how many distinct Christian denominations there are in the world? Estimates put it somewhere between 35 and 45,000. <laughs> Jesus prayed that we will be one. We are a long way off that. Now, to be clear, I don't have a problem with denominations. Because like, I think that when denominations are based around different uh, emphases or styles or uh, you know, different focuses, I, I don't think that in and of itself is necessarily a problem. Because seeking unity doesn't mean that every church should look the same. Jesus doesn't call us to unity and homogeneity. Like, we don't all have to look the same. It's unity within diversity. And actually, I think if denominations represent different diversity, that's fine. In fact, that can be a good thing. If there was only one type of church in Birmingham, or if every church in Birmingham looked exactly like you, that would not be good news for Birmingham. It really wouldn't. Why? Because Birmingham is a diverse place. Our world is a diverse place. People have different needs and longings and bring different baggage or different expectations or have different passions or have different ways of expressing themselves. And so if there was only one type of church, it would only reach a tiny proportion of this city. Diversity in churches is a good thing. No one church is going to be good for the city if everyone looked the same. So if all the people in the city are going to be reached and have an opportunity to experience Jesus for themselves, we actually need diversity within the church. And unity does not mean that everyone needs to look the same, think the same, act the same, partner on exactly the same things, believe exactly the same things. We are different and that's okay. More than it being okay, it's actually good. I mean, think of a family. Like you may have different siblings who bring different things to the table. You've got the attractive one, the intelligent one, the funny one, the successful one. And that's not a great example because in my family, I'm all of those. But, like, <laughs> but you get in your family, right? Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> my brother and sister hate that joke. <laughs> um, sorry if you're watching. Uh, but like, we all bring different things to the table. And that's good. It's good that in a family you have different people with different passions and different skills and different jobs and different career paths and, and all those different things. But that doesn't mean you're not united. Actually, a true family is united in their diversity, where they come to the table and they celebrate one another. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. What Jesus has created us for and what he prays for is that we will be united in our diversity and that therefore we will be able to model what the world longs for, unity and diversity. But sadly, you don't need me to tell you this. The history is littered with division between denominations, between churches, even within churches. Sometimes violent division. And not just in distant history, like even today that is the case. And even when it doesn't exist as violent disunity, often there is subtle disunity in the church. We judge others who practice their faith differently to us. We question the sincerity of other people's motives. We allow competitiveness to tear us apart. And when we, as Christians or as churches, allow ourselves to hold attitudes that foster disunity, we actually become the reason that Jesus' prayer remains unanswered. Do you ever wonder why people don't seem to be as interested in the Christian faith as we might like them to be? I wonder if in part it's because we are so often infighting in a way that makes people look at the church and go, why would I want to be part of that? You preach a message of love, you can't even do it yourselves. 
That's why Jesus prays that we would be one. So that people would look at us and see the unity and love that is on display there and say, this is what my heart has been craving for. This is what I long for and cannot find anywhere else. I want to know the God that makes that possible. That's what we're meant to be. When I was thinking about this talk, I was reminded of a a story that I'd read about in a number of books. And I don't think it's just because of the name of the place, but it's your namesake. It happened in Birmingham, Alabama. And... um, I think in some ways it's a a beautiful picture of what the church can look like in unity, but also a sobering reminder of how disunited the church often is. So in September 1963, four members of the Ku Klux Klan planted 15 sticks of dynamite in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. It was a predominantly black church, and they killed four young girls and injured another 20. It was just an abominable act of racist violence. And that should have been a moment that the churches around them gathered together and supported them. And the real tragedy is that many of the white churches just turned a blind eye. It was just too messy, too difficult for them to get involved in, and so they carried on doing their own thing. I mean, there's so much to say about that. It's heartbreaking. But across the Atlantic, in a small town in Wales, a Christian artist by the name of John Petz heard about this. He had no connection to Birmingham, Alabama, but he heard about this and he thought, I've got to do something. I've got to do something about this. And so he decided to use his skills to do something, to stand in solidarity with this community. He launched a campaign through the local papers. This is like way before Kickstarter. And he just asked for donations to help him as an artist to use his skills to create a new stained glass window to replace the one that had been blown out by the blast. And he gathered together this money from largely white communities in Wales who had no connection to this church at all, and they created this beautiful, beautiful window. In fact, there's a picture of it, if we can have it on the screen, just a portion of it. It depicts Jesus as a black man at his moment of greatest suffering under this rainbow that represents racial unity. And it's a glorious picture, and it represents something I, think, I believe something of the heart of God. It symbolizes a God who willingly went to the place of death and pain in order to break down the walls of hostility and create in his body a new humanity, drawn together in one. And on top of what the image, actually, can we keep it up for a moment, if you don't mind? On top of what that image actually represents, like the formal picture of the image, I think symbolically it represents something really powerful. The church coming together as one. Even the very form of it, I think, represents something at the heart of Jesus' prayer. So many different individual pieces of different sizes and shapes and colors coming together to depict something that they couldn't do as individuals in their different places. And this is such a beautiful window. There have been essays written about it, documentaries made about it. It's like so many people have gone gone on a journey to see this beautiful window. And as they do, what they see is somehow an embodiment of what Jesus prayed for. The church coming together in their difference as one to display in glorious technicolor the one who can unify this shattered world, the only one who can unify this shattered world. That is a picture of how the church should be if Jesus' prayer were to be answered. People should look at us and marvel at the one who can make that possible. We are a long way from that. It's Pete Gregg, the founder and leader of 24-7 prayer movement. He puts it like this. 
Christ's great unanswered prayer is for Christian unity. And if our hearts are to echo his heart cry, we must learn to pray together and love one another, not just notionally from afar, but in practical, relational ways. Unity takes hard work, and it raises huge questions. It really does. As someone who's been in church leadership for a long time, it raises big questions. Because some of the things that divide churches are small and trivial and stylistic, and we can get over those. (laughs) But some of them are deep and difficult. You know, ancient hurt, ancient disagreement, disagreement over some core theological issues that make it really difficult to know how can we worship together without compromising on what either of us believe. Like, there are big, difficult questions, and they are way above my pay grade, and I can't answer them. But sometimes what happens is that I look at the disunity of the church, and I think, I don't know how to correct that, so I won't even bother starting. If you feel the same, let me give you two encouragements. The first is this. Even though I can't fathom how unity in the church is possible, Jesus prayed for it and Jesus died for it, so it must be possible. And secondly, I don't think that Jesus expects little old me to be able to right the wrongs of history and correct the unity of the church right across the globe. But what I do think he expects of me is that I take responsibility for the areas that I can. I start small. And if all of us did that, maybe we'd be onto something. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So we've been given the gift of unity, and with that comes a calling. And Paul says, I urge you, you can feel like his heart cried, like this is so important. Why? Because Jesus prayed for it, and he gave his life for it. I urge you to live up to this calling. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Just hear those words, one, all, again and again and again. Paul is saying there is one God and there is one church built around one Lord and one faith, one baptism. And Paul doesn't say, so try and create unity. Go on. Give it a go. No, he says you are unified. What we have to do is keep the unity that the Spirit has created. That's not on us. What's on us is keeping what God has uniquely been able to do. The Spirit has made us one. And so in other words, what Paul is saying is you have the gift of unity and with that gift comes a calling to do everything you can to live in line with the way God sees you. You don't have to create that. But what you do have to do is make sure that you foster attitudes that work with the grain of the Spirit, not against it. Do you see what I'm saying? And Paul gets immensely practical. He says, be humble. Humility includes, I think, a willingness to recognize that we might not always get it right. <laughs> and that other people may be better informed or better equipped than we are. Humility involves an openness to being corrected and to submitting to others. We've got to foster that gentleness, when we differ, when we struggle with one another, at whatever level, I think our tone should be one of gentleness, not accusing, not attacking, but building bridges and expressing our difference with grace. He says, be patient. Patience recognizes that change takes time. It takes a long time to genuinely hear and understand each other so that we really know what we're talking about and we have the shared language. Change takes time. He says, be patient with one another, just as we would hope that people would be patient and try and get to know us as we truly are. And 
be okay with us when it takes us a little bit longer to change than we might like. He says, bear with one another in love. Love is the emotion that should permeate all of our interactions. Why? Because this whole thing's about love. Jesus said that the Father loves us with the very same love that the Father has towards Jesus. That's insane. It's insane. The love that the Father has always had for his Son, who has never done anything wrong, who has always been perfectly in line with him, that we are welcomed into the heart of the Trinity in a way that I cannot explain or understand. We get to experience the very same love of the Father to the Son. But with that comes the challenge that we need to love one another with that very same quality of love. And I confess that I so often don't get this right. I'm so aware of the ways that I fail. And I become a conduit of disunity rather than unity. It's way too easy for me to be arrogant or brash or to assume that I'm right and others are wrong and they're the ones that need to change and see things the way that I do. Even when I might be right and others do need to change, often I demand that they change at a faster pace than they're ready for because I don't act with patience or grace or gentleness. Sometimes I express my opinions, sometimes, often I express my opinions with more force than I should or as gracious or kind. I can, in the secrets of my heart, I can hold opinions about others, assume the worst of them. Oh, that church just does it that way because they think X, Y, or Z, or they value that more than the gospel. I can hold attitudes towards other churches and even people within my church that are horrid. If they knew, they'd never invite me to speak again. (laughs) If you knew some of the things in my heart at times, you'd be like, cut that microphone right now, get him out of here. We all do. I don't want to be the reason that Jesus' prayer remains unanswered. I can't do unity in my own strength. I need the Spirit of God. Pope John Paul II, in a sermon in Lent 2000, he preached this sermon and he had this prayer challenging the church to be a force for unity. I find it incredibly challenging, and actually it reminds me of a prayer that Jesus taught all his disciples to pray. He said this, We humbly ask for forgiveness for the part that each of us, with his or her behaviors, has played in the evils that contribute to disrupting the face of the church. At the same time, as we confess our sins, let us forgive the faults committed by others towards us. So here's my question. How are you doing at this? Because, I I mean, I don't want to judge, but I suspect that I'm not the only one. that feels the force of this. How are you doing at this? And where might God be prompting you today to be an agent of unity rather than disunity? Here's what I want to do, just to be very practical. I'm aware that some of the stuff we talked about early on was quite theoretical and hard, and you're talking about the Trinity, and there's also loads I didn't get into from this passage uh, that Adrian would love to answer another day once I've... (laughs) got right back to my my city and but but I, I just want to give you three incredibly practical bits of homework this week and these will not sort the problem 
of disunity in the church, but they're baby steps. And if all of us could do this, and if the whole church could do this, I think this would be a really powerful way of Jesus' prayer being, unanswer- uh, being, un- uh, being answered, <laughs> going from being unanswered to being answered. So three things. I want you to think about unity in growing circles, starting here and widening out, here to the city, to the world. So start with this church. This week, maybe even this morning as we return to worship, why don't you just take a moment to say, God, examine my heart and show me any ways that I am exhibiting traits that lead to disunity rather than unity. And that's a painful and potentially dangerous prayer to pray because when you ask God to examine your heart, he does. You might find it helpful just to prayerfully pray through Ephesians 4 and look at those attributes that Paul talks about and and ask God, are there any attitudes I hold that are more toxic than life-giving? Are there any areas where I need to ask for forgiveness, either from God or from others? Are there any areas where maybe people have hurt me and that has become bitterness that has led to disunity, whether actual or just in your heart? Are there people I need to forgive? And with this, I would say, um, you don't have to work this out alone. In fact, often it's not good to work it out alone um, because depending on the issues that you maybe need to talk about or pray about or forgive or ask forgiveness for, sometimes you need someone else to come alongside you. Sometimes it's actually not appropriate to try and do it yourself. And reconciliation and forgiveness takes time. And so I, I hope, pastors, you don't mind me sort of saying this, but like, go to people who have pastoral wisdom and can talk you through this and can help you and pray with you and facilitate those conversations. Change takes time. Forgiveness and reconciliation takes time and work and wisdom. But you can start that today by saying, God, I want to be in line with the way that you see us. Shine your light into my heart. Start with this church and then widen out to this city. Why not take some time this week to pray Jesus' prayer from John 17 over the churches of this city? Do you know how many churches there are in Birmingham? Do you know? No, I don't either. I tried to find out, but <laughs> findachurch.co.uk. Brilliant. It capped it at 200. That's annoying. And then there were loads of dots, and I'm like, I can't be bothered to count all those. So, like, it's hundreds of churches in this city, right? Why not pray for those churches in this city? Here's a, a challenge for you. I have done this. Actually, I haven't. So, we moved to Oxford last year. I did this when I was in London. There are just churches, like, everywhere. <laughs> you can, like, trip over a church as soon as you step out your door. Like, there are churches everywhere. But I did this. I found it incredibly helpful. Every time you spot a church this week, note it and pray for it. You might want to do that throughout the whole week, or that actually might be overwhelming. So if there's like one particular commute that you do every week to work or to school or even like to here, to church, or on the way back from home from from church today, why don't you just look out for every church? Every time you spot one, which you may never have spotted before, pray for that church. And what you'll find is that you'll notice way more than you ever even knew existed. And what you'll also notice that as you pray for them, something changes in your hearts. Now, some of those churches will be vast. Some of them will be tiny. Some of them you'll see a glorious building like this. Some of them, the only hint you'll know that there is a church is there's a little banner that says, on Sundays, this school becomes a church. (laughs) Pray for them. Some of them will worship in languages you don't speak or styles that you would find difficult. Some of them are formal. Some of them are relaxed. All of them are family. And so take some time this week to pray for those churches. Every time you spot one, just a quick prayer for them. 
If you don't know what to pray, you may, and if you have time, Google them, find out something about them, pray for them. The kind of things you can pray for are just anything you would want someone to pray for this church, pray for them. Pray for their leaders, pray for unity in that church, pray for their community projects, pray for their Sunday services, pray that they would be able to reach people that this church would never reach. The people who come in these doors and go, oh, I could never be part of the church, maybe they could be part of that church. Pray for their finances, pray for their resources, pray for their building. Anything that you want them to be praying for you, pray for them. Do this throughout the week. And if those prayers never make the slightest bit of difference to those churches, which I think they will, actually, they'll make a difference to you. They'll expand your heart. They'll give you a sense of just the broader, beautiful picture of what God is doing in this city. I have done this myself. I found it so helpful just to highlight unhealthy things and root them out and get rid of competitiveness and make me celebrate the diversity of the church. Because if it were all down to you, there's so much that this city would miss out on. So start here, widen out to the city, maybe go one step further and think about the world. Again, you don't need me to tell you that this world is in a broken and divided place right now. In the midst of all that we are praying for, let's also pray for the global church. Let's pray for churches in nations where it is illegal to practice your faith in public. Let's pray for a church in Ukraine. You may know people in Ukraine, you may not, but pray for the church in Ukraine. Pray for the church in Russia. Like so many churches in Russia are just, I think, abandoning Christian teaching in order to prop up something so unhealthy. Pray for them. Pray for the churches that are standing up for the gospel and are facing persecution. Pray for churches in other nations that, are, that they would be on the forefront of welcoming in refugees. And as we pray for this very obvious, visible situation, don't forget to pray for the churches in nations that we don't even know of maybe don't even know exist. Pray for the global church. Very practically, if this helps you, sign up for a newsletter from an overseas church or aid organization. Like someone like Open Doors, it's brilliant. Like you get these little prayer points and it's like, oh, I didn't even know anything about that country. Amazing, I can pray for them. One of my colleagues, he and his family, every morning, they pray for the church in a different nation around the world. I think that's beautiful. Bit of homework for you this week. Pray for the global church. These are baby steps. They won't sort the problems in their entirety, but they're a way of saying with all of our being, Jesus, I want to be intentional about being the answer to your prayer. So here's what we're going to do. I've overrun slightly, but if the band could come back up, that would be wonderful. In a moment, I want to lead us in worship. And worship is our way of fixing our eyes on the one who died and rose again to bring unity. And when we worship, we invite the Spirit, who is the Spirit of unity. So it may be that even in the context of worship, you actually want to ask the Holy Spirit to start a work in you to help you over this week, to process stuff and to be just aligned with his heart for this city and his church in the world. And if there are things that you need to get right with God or with others, you can start that today. Again, don't do it alone. Do it with a trusted friend. Before we worship, I would just love to lead us in a prayer that is based on John 17 and Ephesians 4. And I think what we'll do is I'll get you to read out this prayer. Maybe I'll get you to stand in a moment. We'll read out this prayer. And then I'll just pray for the Holy Spirit to come and to do what he alone can do. Does that sound all right? Why don't we stand then? We'll have this prayer up on the screen. Now, why don't we pray it together? Heavenly Father, we echo Jesus' prayer for us, your church.
that we may be one as you are one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you empower us to live lives worthy of our calling, keeping the unity that your Spirit has made? Help us to be humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make us quick to ask for forgiveness and quick to forgive when it is asked of us. Fill us with your love and bring us to unity that the world may see us and marvel at you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you just close your eyes, maybe hold out your hands if you would like, just as a way of saying, I need you, Holy Spirit. And actually, as we hold out our hands, it's a way of, I think, saying, I want to let go of anything that gets in the way of unity, and I want to receive the spirit of unity. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Align our hearts with yours. Would you do something deep in each of us, in this community, in me, that empowers us to be the answer to your great prayer? so that the world would see in us something radical and beautiful that's like an open doorway, a glimpse into the very heart of the Trinity. And I do want to pray, Lord, that as we worship, you would do something in us. And I pray that it wouldn't feel like a heavy burden that rests on us, but actually a joy, because unity is the way we were designed to flourish. And so I pray that as we seek that, with all the hard work that involves, I pray it will be a joyous thing, that we're being more closely connected to the God who gives rest to our restless hearts. I pray that you would unleash a spirit of unity and joy in this community, and that it will ripple out across the city and across the world. Make us one, as you are one. And we thank you for your love that love that has always existed within the Godhead, I pray that today we would experience that love deep in our hearts afresh by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.